All right, well, uh, Merry Christmas. It's uh, hard to believe it's already Christmas. It's uh, actually kind of hard for me to believe how quickly this year has, has gone already, just in general. It's amazing uh, that we, as a family, have been here at Cornerstone for almost a year already. Uh, it sort of feels like it's flown by. Uh, but it's been a great year. We love being at Cornerstone, and we uh, really like being back in the United States for uh, Christmas this year uh, as well, uh, because we spent a lot of years outside of America for uh, Christmas, during Christmas. And in Africa, it's actually funny because it's warm right now. And so uh, Christmas is a time that you swim and, and uh, it feels like everything uh, slows down and everybody goes on holiday. And uh, here, it's definitely not slowing down for sure. And uh, the weather feels like it's Christmas. And it's obvious that there are a lot of people who take uh, Christmas pretty seriously. Uh, and we've enjoyed uh, going out and seeing some of the Christmas lights. Uh, glad that I don't live in that neighborhood in Brea, but it's nice that, they, <laughs> nice that they do that, that's for sure. And then there's uh, Christmas caroling, and uh, there's all kinds of things going on. And I'm, I'm sure that people have all sorts of different reasons for being excited about Christmas. Some of those reasons are good, and some of those reasons are, are not so good. Uh, presence, time with family, a time off work. But as believers, we've got a whole uh, other reason we're excited about this time of year, and it's because it gives us the opportunity to talk about Jesus. Uh, Christmas ultimately is about Jesus. At Christmas, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. And so I thought I could take some time and talk about my favorite person in the universe and talk with you about who Jesus is. Uh, first of all, uh, because there's no one more important than Jesus. If you take all the people who ever lived, Jesus is uh, the most important. And we, we know that because God wrote a book, and in that book, he, he talks about Jesus. In fact, he wrote basically the whole book about him, getting us ready for Jesus, explaining Jesus, exalting Jesus. And, and what's more, it's not just the Bible that is about Jesus either. Human history is about Jesus. So there's a lot going on and a lot that seems important, but the ultimate reason that God is doing what he's doing in history is for the purpose of glorifying himself through Jesus. So the Bible is about Jesus, history is about Jesus, the universe is about Jesus, and you're about Jesus. When you look at your life, Jesus is the reason you exist. And the Bible tells us that you are going to, to glorify Jesus one way or the other. Either you're going to glorify him as savior or you're going to glorify him as judge. But at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so obviously the church is about Jesus. We are a Jesus people. We love Jesus. We want to love Jesus more. We want our lives to revolve around Jesus. And so one reason we talk about Jesus so much and why we're so happy for every opportunity we get to talk about him is because we believe Jesus is the most important person who ever existed. Another reason, though, is because he's also one of the most misunderstood. So he's the most important person, and he's the, the most misunderstood person, and there are just so many misconceptions about him, wrong ideas about Jesus. Probably, partly, because we're all a little tempted to create a Jesus in our own image, it's kind of like a funny illustration, but just to picture the problem. You know the, the most well-known painting of Jesus? It's called The Head of Christ. It was painted by someone named Warner Salmon way back in the early 1900s. And now they say there's like a half a billion copies of this painting all around the world, which is amazing. And uh, there are so many copies of this painting, many people, um, maybe millions of people, when they think of what Jesus looked like, they think of someone who looks like this uh, white American or European with long hair and, and funny clothes. And of course, I don't know Warner Salman, the artist who painted this painting, but when he went to paint Jesus, he painted someone who looked like him, uh, or at least looked like the people in his culture, which is what we're tempted to do as well. Maybe not when it comes to painting Jesus. Most of us aren't painting Jesus. We're not artists, uh, but instead when it comes to thinking about Jesus, about who he is, and thinking about what he's like, we sometimes have misconceptions about Jesus because we're thinking about Jesus 
more on the basis of ideas we get from our culture or the people around us or what we like or don't like than we are the Bible, which is a problem because Jesus is not an imaginary person. He is a real person, and our entire eternal future depends on our relationship with him. And so it's important we know the Bible's answer to the question, who is Jesus? Now, there are a couple different ways the Bible answers that question, actually. For example, one way the Bible answers that question is by talking about his person, or you could say his nature, which is a a little different, obviously, uh, and should make you pause when it comes to Jesus, because we don't have to do this with anyone else. We don't have to talk about their nature. If I'm talking about someone else, I I don't say, let me talk about his nature, (laughs) Because everyone else is human, 100%. That's all. That's their nature. So when we talk about someone else in the Bible, like the Apostle Paul, we don't have to say, well, what was Paul? Uh, Who was Paul? What was Paul's nature? Because Paul was only human, like us. But Jesus is absolutely unique in the history of the universe because, first, he was and is eternally the begotten Son of God and the full image and expression of God the Father. He's fully God, and yet at a point in time, he became fully man. He wasn't always man. He became man, not by giving up being God, but by somehow adding human nature to himself, which is part of why we're celebrating his birth all these years later, because there's never been another baby like him. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 2, verse 9. He says, In Christ... In him, the whole fullness of deity, or you could say God, everything that God is in Christ dwells, abides, resides in bodily form, which is awesome. And I know it's a truth that many of you are familiar with, but it should make you sing. It's one of the things that we sing about at Christmas, actually. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. Or hark the herald angels sing. What do they sing? They sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, please with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel which are not just great Christmas carols. Whenever we sing carols like that, it's uh, easy for us to sing them almost as if, almost matter of fact, but they're not just matter of fact. They're awesome truths. They're really great sermons. They're reminding us of truths that are key to getting Jesus right. And so one way we often start talking about Jesus is by talking about who he is. But, uh, But another way we can get to know Jesus is by talking about what he does. So if I talk about Jesus, I might talk about who he is, or I might talk about what he does. And we can take a long time to talk about what he does, and really we should. This is part of why we have a a long Bible. Uh, It's why God didn't send a, a Savior right after Adam and Eve sinned. He spent a lot of time talking and orchestrating history to provide us categories for understanding Jesus. He, he, what Jesus was coming to do was going to be so significant that God wanted to give us pictures to help us understand him. Like, for example, the high priest in the Old Testament. Who is Jesus? Well, what does he do? He's a high priest. Or another category the Bible gives us to understand Jesus is that of a prophet. If we're going to have a right understanding of who Jesus is, we need to think about his work as a priest. We need to think about his work as a prophet But you know another category that we absolutely have to talk about is his work as king. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. And that one's really on my heart. That's what I want to talk with you about today, partially because it's Christmas. And this is one of the things that the angel announced to Mary when he told her that she was going to give birth. If you look at Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, if you open your Bible and look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26, you'll find that Luke says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. And we have been working our way through Luke, so we talked about this and how he went to a virgin, verse 27, uh, 
who was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And you know what the angel said to Mary? Coming in, he, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And so Luke tells us, the angel explains, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so you, you see at the very beginning of Jesus' life as a man, even before the beginning, before he was conceived, the angel is saying one of the things that's going to make him so important is the fact that he's going to be king. This is like a political announcement. <laughs> Jesus is going to be king. And then towards the end of his life, that was the beginning of his life, toward the end of his life, he's entering Jerusalem over in Luke chapter 19, and he's done all kinds of amazing things. And and people are getting excited. And so as he's approaching Jerusalem, he's coming down from the Mount of Olives. You know what the people say? Uh, Luke 19, verse 38. They begin to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And then almost at the very end, actually, Luke chapter 23. This is right before the crucifixion. You know the accusation that the religious leaders brought that they thought was going to get Jesus crucified. Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate, the Roman governor, he heard this, and so he asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, I love this. It is as you say. And then, of course, he dies. And when he dies, Luke tells us there was an inscription hanging above him, which said what? This is the king of the Jews. And so this is important to Luke. This is somehow key to who Jesus is. This is one of the reasons the Gospel of Luke was written. It was to prove that Jesus is king. And so I want us to stop and think about what does it mean for Jesus to be king? What do we mean? What does Luke mean when he says Jesus is king? Uh, we want to know Jesus. Who is Jesus according to the, the Bible? And according to the Bible, we do not know Jesus if we don't know him as king. And to help you know him as king, I want to look at six components of how the Bible reveals Jesus as king. First, he's the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. Before he comes as king in the Gospel of Luke, the Bible tells you about this king who's going to come. We even heard that in Isaiah. And while I don't have time to tell the whole story, the story actually starts way back in the book of Genesis. Uh, it starts literally on the first two pages of the Bible, where God makes man, and God makes man what? He makes man king of the world, basically. And you can see that in the commands that God gives man. He tells man to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And what is dominion? It is to rule. And who rules? It's kings, or at least people representing kings. And that is maybe a better way to describe man's role. Because ultimately God is king, but he gave man the opportunity to serve as his representative by ruling on his behalf over the world, almost like a governor. But of course, man didn't. If that's not page one or two, that's page three, where we see that instead of ruling over the world, man lets an animal rule over him, and he hands basically his uh, God-given authority over to Satan, which was a massive tragedy in the history of the world. But that tragedy didn't cause God to give up on his plan. And so as God comes to judge man, one of the very first things he says in Genesis 3, verse 15, is that since Satan tried to defeat him through the woman... God is going to raise up a seed of the woman to defeat Satan. He's going to be a conquering king. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And the rest of the Old Testament slowly reveals who that seed is going to be and how God is going to establish that seed as king to do in the end what Adam didn't, to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. And so look, listen, when we say Jesus is king, this is a big deal. Because this is not just any old king. Like, oh, Jesus is king like Prince Harry, or is he a prince anymore, or Prince William, or whoever those kings of England are. Instead, this is the king the whole Old Testament is talking about as the key to all of God's plans in the world. Welcome to Christianity. <laughs> it's an announcement about Jesus as the promised king. That's first. Second, he is going to be a complete king. Walk with me here. He's going to be, I want you to see how Jesus is king, what the Bible reveals about him as king, what the angel means. He's going to be a complete king. In other words, he's going to be king over everything. I'm talking about king of the world, the whole thing, and bigger, king of the universe, bigger, king of the universes. Because God's promised plan is to have one man rule the world. And you know, again, the Bible says that pretty much from the very beginning, back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, which of course is the very first book of the Bible. And here at the end, you have someone named Jacob prophesying. He's an old man, and he's prophesying about what is going to happen at the end of the days. Genesis 49, verse 1, he says, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the end of the days. What's going to happen in the last days? And he talks specifically about one of his sons named Judah in verse 10, who's going to become a group of people or a tribe, you might say. And he's talking about this tribe, Judah. And Jacob says, Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Jacob or from Judah. And you know what a, a scepter is, but in case you don't, he continues. He says, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And so a scepter is a ruler's staff. It's something that a king uses. And Jacob is saying that God intends someone from the tribe of Judah to rule. But watch this. He continues, someone from the tribe of Judah is going to rule until tribute comes to him. And that's a difficult Hebrew word to translate. But there's some reason to think it means until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. In other words, there's going to be different individuals ruling from the line of Judah until the, the ruler comes. And this is the key. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, peoples generically, like everyone. So way back in the book of Genesis, God promises that a descendant of Judah would rule over the entire world, and that's Jesus. That is what the angel is saying back in Luke 1, when he says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It's not a theoretical kingship and a hypothetical kingdom. This is a real king. This is a, like a political announcement. Jesus is the promised king. And what kind of king does God promise Jesus would be? He promises Jesus will be a complete king. He's not going to rule over just one little area in the world. He's going to rule it all, absolutely. In fact, if you fast forward to the book of Daniel, from Genesis to Daniel, and Daniel is important because where Genesis is a book at the beginning of the Old Testament, where the promise is just at the start, it's kind of fresh, Daniel is a book towards the end of the Old Testament. And the end of the Old Testament can seem pretty sad, actually, because it looks from a human perspective like God's plan has failed. Because in Genesis, he says he's going to send a king, and so he raises up this nation, Israel, he gives them the promised land, he chooses a king for them, one after his own heart, and yet that king that God chooses fails, and all the rest of the kings God gave Israel basically turn their back on him, and as a result, they're kicked out of the promised land, and in Daniel, they're hardly a nation anymore, and they're being ruled over by this pagan king who's like the opposite of the promised king, and yet in the book of Daniel, as we're about to give up hope, we find God coming and saying, I'm not done. I'm still in charge, and in Daniel 7, God gives Daniel this vision, a prophetic dream. This is one of the more important chapters in the entire Bible, actually, but it's a little strange at first because it's this dream of 
these beasts and monsters, and they're like battling with one another, and it's kind of scary, and uh, the beasts represent these kings, and what's happening essentially is that these kings are warring against God, and in the end, there's this one great beast monster who's more powerful than all the others, and it looks like he's winning until God the judge shows up, and this king is killed, and you know it's fast in Daniel 7, it's, it's quick, and if you read it, you're, you're wondering, how did this happen exactly, and what's going to happen next? And Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 tells us. This is, this is huge. It's key. It's actually going to be key to understanding Luke. But listen to this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, which is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and, and Jesus. And these few words are saying all kinds of things about him. He's, he's coming with the clouds of heaven. And there's only one person in the Old Testament who comes on clouds, and that's God himself. So this is presenting Jesus as being God, and yet at the same time, he says he's like a son of man. He's human. He's, human. he's not coming on the clouds here like Yahweh. He's coming like a son of man. And he comes to the Ancient of Days, Daniel says, God the Father, and was presented before him. Just like that, which is unusual. If you think of Isaiah, he has to say, woe is me when he comes into God's presence. And you think presence, and you think of others who have to change out of their filthy garments in the Old Testament. But he's able just to come into the king's presence, and he's presented because he's perfect, obviously, like this, because he's perfect, obviously, this son of man. And verse 14 is the thing I really wanted you to see, because Daniel says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And remember, this is talking about Jesus, and it's a promise in the Old Testament about him as king. And it's saying that, hear this, that even after all that crazy stuff with Israel, and even after all those disappointments, God's plan is still on. He's still planning for Jesus to rule as king over absolutely everything and over absolutely everyone. So imagine a world with one king and everyone doing what he says. You're imagining the future. Isaiah chapter 16, verse 5, puts it like this. A throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And so I want you to hear that world's coming. God's promise is that Jesus would be a complete king. He is the promised king. He is a complete king. But third, as we open the Gospels, we see he is also a rejected king, and that's kind of the shock of it all. That's why part of why we have to keep coming back week after week and remembering reality, remembering what's true. Because he's announced in Luke chapter 1 as this great king. He's born in Luke chapter 2, and it's this huge moment because the king is here, God has become man, and the promises are going to be fulfilled. And as we keep reading the gospel, we see him showing his authority over absolutely everything. He is able to do this. He has authority over nature. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over death. And so he definitely proves that he is the one who's able to reverse the curse. And people recognize that. And towards the end of the gospel, as he enters Jerusalem, they're cheering, they're proclaiming him as king. And yet, you know what Jesus does after they proclaim him as king? He does something very surprising, because in the very next scene, we find this great promised king weeping, like shoulder-shaking weeping. And he's weeping because he knows the people don't really want him as king. In fact, they're going to crucify him, which, of course, seems like a surprise to us. And yet one reason the Gospels were written is to show us that it was not a surprise to God at all. Instead, it was all part of God's plan to accomplish exactly what he wanted to accomplish through Jesus as king. It doesn't mean he's lost. It's actually part of his strategy to win, to establish Jesus as king. I don't know if you've ever met someone who's good at strategy. Uh, we had someone in the church here who can do uh, Rubik's Cubes in like 17 seconds, and that's incredible to me. I'm not good at strategy. Maybe you know someone who's really good at strategy and can just play chess at an, another level. Uh, and so uh, he is the kind of person that will make a decision and you think, don't do that, that's not going to work. 
but then it works and you realize he sees all kinds of things you didn't. And he's got a much bigger plan than you were understanding. And so what looked like the worst decision was absolutely the exact right decision to get accomplished what needed to be accomplished. And times infinity, that is God. The cross is a key part of God's strategy for establishing Jesus as king. In fact, listen to the way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, and he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus. In verse 15, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, which reminds you of what, or better, who? It reminds you of Adam. Adam was made in the image of God, and so Paul's looking at Jesus and saying he's the new Adam. He's the firstborn of all creation, and that doesn't literally mean first one born. It means oldest brother. So it's a way of saying Jesus is the, the new Adam. He's the, the man with the highest authority. But why? First of all, Paul says, because of who he is. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, he deserves to be king because he's the one who created everything, and he's the reason everything was created. And besides, he's the one who keeps everything going as well. He's, he's king because of who he is. But it's the second part you need to see, verse 18. And he's the head of the body, the church. And head, that means authority again, king. But why? Look where Paul goes. He is the beginning, he says, the firstborn from the dead. And so obviously Jesus is king because he created the world, but there's more to it. He's also king because he created the church, and he did that through his coming into the world and through his dying and through his resurrection. And listen, that wasn't some sort of deviation from God's strategy to exalt Jesus. It was part of it. Paul says he did this, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might have first place. And you understand what's happening at the cross, and you understand why he has to have first place. Because while there are lots of important people who have done a lot of great things throughout the years, there's, there's only one person in the world who's ever made it possible for us to be forgiven. And that's Jesus on the cross, taking the punishment for sin. And there's only one person in the world who's ever defeated death for us, and that's Jesus in the resurrection, rising on our behalf. And there's only one person in the world who can give us the gift of eternal life, and it's Jesus, and he did that through the cross. He's the promised king first, the one who's going to defeat Satan. He's going to be a complete king, second. He's going to establish God's everlasting kingdom and rule the world. And that's going to happen not in spite of the cross, but because of the cross. Jesus' rejection and death on the cross is part of how God's making him this complete king because on the cross, he's dealing with the fundamental problem in the universe, sin. Fourth, he's a real king, Jesus. Even now, he's a real king. And I, I know I keep saying it, but I, I want you to hear this is not theory that we're talking about. This is not just like an interesting subject. Isn't that interesting how the Bible presents Jesus as king? Now, this is reality. Paul tells us what happened after Jesus died in Ephesians 1. So if you go to Ephesians 1, after Jesus died, he rose again. This is a, a real person. And after he rose again, he went into heaven. And when he went into heaven, you know what happened? He sat at God's right hand, and God gave him absolutely a absolute authority over everything. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. Listen to how Paul puts it. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So in other words, Jesus is no pretend king. He's not like just a figurehead. He has authority. He has power. In fact, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every that name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And this is so important for us as Christians to remember at Christmas time because right now we're seeing Jesus so humble, you know? He's, he's like, looks like this little baby in those nativity scenes. And it's also down to earth. He's born, he's, he's placed in a major, and you have these shepherds worshiping him. The angels show up, and they sing this great song, mostly to sheep, you know. <laughs> and, and, he's, and he's raised by these peasants. I mean, Mary, when she's uh, meeting this angel, is probably in her teens. 
he lives this normal childhood. When he begins his ministry, his followers are fishermen, and he's washing their feet, and it's beautiful for sure, but sometimes I'm afraid that as we look at Jesus acting so humbly in the Gospels, we forget how much power and authority he has. Like, he's king, you hear me, but you know, you're like, he's not a scary king. He's not a great king. No, <laughs> he is a scary king, or at least an awe-inspiring king. He is a great king. And of course, there are glimpses in the Gospels of that where you start to see it, because here's Jesus, and demonic beings are frightened of him, and they're falling at his feet, and they're begging him for mercy. And here's Jesus, and he's controlling nature. The storm is raging, and he rebukes it, and it listens. It listens. And here's Jesus, and he's telling death what to do. Death. And that's just the gospels before his exaltation. When you think about Jesus, you have to realize he is unlike any person you have ever known because most people can't be meek and powerful at the same time. Usually when you have one quality, you don't have the other. So that guy is gentle, but he's not strong. Or that guy is really strong, but he could work on being gentle. But Jesus is different, which is why the Bible describes him as both lion and a lamb. He is a servant king, and he is a great warrior king. And that is one of the things we love most about Jesus. This Jesus we're following is a real king. He has the title. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name. He has the crown. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has the sword. He has the army. He has the power. He is a real king, a king who's been given more power and more authority than anyone else who's ever ruled, and he has that right now, which is part of what motivates us as a church to go out there with the gospel, because listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you might underline all, because how much authority does Jesus have right now? All. He is king over the entire universe. And so if you were going to get in a spaceship and fly for millions and millions of life, light years and get off on some distant planet, Jesus is king there. He is king over the world you see, and he's king over the world you don't see. I mean, there are beings out there. There are angelic beings who are powerful. We think of ourselves as so great and mighty, but if you saw a demon, you would be falling on your face, scared out of your mind. But Jesus has authority over them. First Peter chapter 3, 22 says, Jesus Christ has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus promises he will give the one who conquers the right to sit down on his throne as he conquered and sat down with the Father on his throne. Jesus is sitting with the Father on the throne. He's king of heaven. And if he's king of the rulers and authorities in heaven, he's king over the rulers and authorities here on earth. John describes Jesus in Revelation 1.5 as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and listen to this, the ruler of kings on earth. He is the ultimate highest authority in the universe right now. He's given, we know, demons and Satan certain temporary authority to exercise in this world right now, but still they're not his equals. Jesus has authority over them, and he is the authority over us, the church. You are not his equal. I am not his equal. We are not on the same level. That's why Paul, even Paul, you know how he described himself? Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants. And that word servant, literally slave. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. James, Jesus' half-brother, said the same thing. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a slave 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, another one of Jesus' half-brothers. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. John, Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things that must soon take place. So this is huge because there's no one in the history of the world that we could say in the church is more important than Paul or James or Jude or Peter or John. These men were apostles. They played this pivotal, non-repeatable role in the establishment of the church, and yet the most important men in the history of the church saw themselves as slaves to Jesus. Jesus is a real king. He's a real king. And that means he's your owner. Your life literally doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. He deserves your submission, complete submission. He has the absolute right to tell you what to do. And listen, if you say you're a Christian, but you don't acknowledge that, that's not how you view things. You want Jesus to be your friend. You want Jesus to be your healer. You want Jesus to be maybe your savior, but you're not willing to acknowledge that he's your king. You don't get to pick and choose which Jesus you want. This is who Jesus is. The Jesus who is a friend and who is a healer and who is a savior is the same Jesus who is the king of kings. Jesus is Jesus, and you don't get to accept one part of him and reject the other. To come to Christ as savior, you have to bow to him as king. This is who the Bible says he is. And I'm glad. And you should be glad as well. This is good news because... I know we don't like kings, and we, uh, we might sometimes feel like, oh, the good news is that Jesus is Savior, and the bad news is that he's king. But no, that's good news. It's good news, because we need a king. Even stronger, you are going to have a king. Everyone has a king. Everyone, absolutely everyone, has someone or something that rules them. And every other king uses you dehumanizes you. But this king, Jesus, this king is the one who died to save you. Who is Jesus? He's king. What does that mean? He's the promised king. He's going to be a complete king. He was a rejected king, but still he's God's chosen king. He's a real king, and he has authority, and he's using that authority right now for the good of the church. He is an active king. That is fifth. He's not just watching. He's acting, making decisions, doing things. And of course, I don't know why, as king, he does everything that he does. That's part of why he's king, and I'm not. He's got unending wisdom, and I don't. And I don't know why, as king, he does everything he does, but I do know that he is actively ruling as king. So why is it hot on some days, and why is it cold on others? Jesus is in charge of that. And why does this ruler or that ruler ultimately get chosen? It comes down to Jesus and his wisdom and Jesus pursuing his great plan. Why was I born where I was born? Why did I have the opportunities I have? It has something to do with Jesus and what he's intending to accomplish in this universe, which means no matter what we think and no matter how we feel, we're not living our lives disconnected from the rule of Jesus. We're living in this world and people are making decisions and things are happening and they're responsible for all that. But behind that, where we can't see, Jesus is active and somehow he's orchestrating all these events and all these circumstances for his people's good. And you know, sometimes we get confused because we're trying to figure out all the ins and outs of it. But we don't have to figure out all the ins and outs. Somehow people are doing their thing and it's terrible. And it's sin, and it's not the way it should be, and we should grieve at that. And yet at the same time, here's Jesus, and he's using what they're doing to move forward his agenda. And you don't need to know how it all works. You just need to know it works. That is what's happening. Jesus is an active king. But you say, ah, oh, I want to I see it more. I want to see it more. I don't see Jesus' rule with my eyes right now the way I want to see Jesus' rule. And I say, amen, because Jesus is ruling now behind the scenes, and God's plan isn't for it always to be behind the scenes. His plan is to send Jesus into this world again, to defeat his enemies, to punish those who are in rebellion, and to establish his kingdom on earth 
as it is in heaven. Jesus is the coming king. The promised king, a complete king, the rejected king, a real king, an active king, and the coming king. In fact, God made a promise back in Luke 1. You remember how the angel said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And God's going to keep that promise. He will have the throne of his father David. And so at Christmas, as we're celebrating how he came the first time, part of what makes his coming the first time so exciting is because we know there's going to be a second. Amen? Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, he's not going to come and be born in a manger. Instead, Revelation pictures him coming riding on a horse. Listen to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And try to, try to listen and get the picture that's being painted. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fight and linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their rider, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds are gorged with their flesh. And that's Jesus <laughs> here. That's intense, isn't it? That's... Uh, intense scene, but that is the same Jesus as the baby we're celebrating at Christmas. The Bible says the same Jesus who came to earth all those years ago is going to come from heaven in absolute glory to pour out the wrath of God on all of those who have spent their lives rebelling against him, and he's going to establish his kingdom, and those who have put their faith in him and been forgiven of their sins are going to be raised from the dead, and they're going to enjoy the benefits of his rule forever. That is Jesus. That's who he is. That's who we're proclaiming. And I want you to know that Jesus. I want you to have a relationship with that Jesus because he's the king the whole universe is waiting for. And he is the central figure in everything that God's doing in the world. God has a plan to remove everything that is wicked and to cleanse the universe and to make it perfect and pure and holy and good so that Jesus can rule everything forever. He is the promised king. He's going to be a complete king, and he's able to be that because he was the rejected king. He dealt with the fundamental problems in the universe, defeating sin and death. And though we don't see him ruling now the way we wish, he is a real king with real authority, and he's actively using that authority now for those who are part of his kingdom. But we are waiting and we are longing and we are hoping for him to return because we know God's plan is even bigger than what we're seeing. He is the coming king. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is Jesus? He is the promised king, the complete king, the rejected king, the real king, the present king, the coming king. But listen, because because here's the question. Is he your king? Is he your king? You say, what does that mean? 
Does he get to tell you what to do? Do you obey him? Is he more important to you than you? Does he get to say, no, you can't do that? You must do this. Is his agenda the one that matters? Are you doing everything under his authority? Is Jesus your king? I know we like democracy as people. We like a place where everybody has a vote. And everybody's vote is equal. But that's not how it works with Jesus. Jesus is king. And he rules in his kingdom. Which means if you don't, if you don't, absolutely don't, acknowledge his sovereign authority over your life, then you are not in Jesus' kingdom. And sure, you might know his name, and you might call yourself a Christian, and other people might think that you are, but if you haven't submitted to Jesus as king, you don't know Jesus, because this is a key part of who Jesus is. And I'm calling you right now, to bow to him because he is a good, good king. He is not a harsh king. He's not a king who uses you. Instead, he's a king who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you can trust him to keep that promise because he is the king who died to save you. Even though he was great and glorious, The Son of God became man to die to take the punishment for your sins so that you could be forgiven. So stop fighting him. Put your trust in him and and prove it by obeying him. And if you have submitted like that, and I know most of you have, that's why you're here, don't give up. We don't just submit to Jesus once. We do it a million times over and over and over again. Lord Jesus, you're my king today. I wake up tomorrow. Lord Jesus, you're my king today. I wake up the next day. Lord Jesus, you're my king today. That means you get to tell me what to do. And I'm glad, even though it can be hard. I know it can be hard to submit to Jesus as king, because the truth is there are like a million different would-be kings out there who are telling you what to do. Every time you turn on the TV, there's a king telling you to obey. Every time you drive down the freeway, there are signs telling you what to do. There are a million would-be kings out there trying to get you to submit to their authority in your life. If they're trying to take the place of ultimate king, they are a false king. They're a pretender. And I know you still have some of those sinful desires. It's not just other kings out there trying to get you to submit. You still have sinful desires. And they're saying, do what you want. Do what you want. Do what you want. But listen, because I love you, I need to, you need a better king than you. You are limited in your knowledge. You are limited in your power. Even your desires are broken. They lie to you. And so if you try to be king over your life, here's here's a promise. You will end up being a slave. You seek to be free by being your own king. You will end up a slave. Think about people you know who are trying to live all out for themselves. They are some of the most enslaved people that you know. There is only one person you can trust to rule you well, and his name is Jesus. So if there is any area in your life where you're not acknowledging his authority, repent and believe. Believe this is the king who died for you, and repent and remember as you look at that baby in the manger. This is who he is. He is the promised king, a complete king, a rejected king, a real king, an active king, and he is a coming king. And as his people, we honor him by submitting to him now and longing for his return. 
which is something we're singing every Christmas, right? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, O come, thou key of David, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and all. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. The king has come, and he's not done. The king will come, and we long for that. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, sit here in church and talk about Jesus as king, it's easy if we're not careful for this to just almost sound like theory or just an interesting subject that we talk about while we're at church, but this is real, first of all, and, and this reality has radical implications for what we do outside of church. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit will preach this message to us. You know where people are coming from. There are some who... They don't believe this story. They don't believe what the Bible says. And they're, they're going to face you if they don't repent as their judge. And we cry out to you that you will open their eyes. There are some who are doubting and they're tempted to walk away from you as king. Oh, Jesus, you're a kind king. Please call them back. And there are some of us who are, who are saying that you're king, but we're living for ourselves. And we're basically just doing what we want. And we open the Bible to find what we want to see. And then we do that. But the parts that we don't like, we don't do. Lord, humble us, bring us to our knees, that we would be servants who obey. Not because you're unkind, but because you're good. Obeying is good for us, and it brings you honor. And Lord, there are some of us who are seeking to obey. We know you're our king, but Lord, we struggle. And so we ask for help. Oh, great king, make us a church that lives this reality out on a day-to-day -day basis, where people see it's clear that person is not their own person. That person is a servant of Jesus. That church serves Jesus above all else. We pray this in your name.